0: From the dark recesses of my unconscious mind, into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to The Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that throws his readers headfirst into the blood-soaked world of Splatterpunk. His characters are complex and depraved, and the violence is obscenely masterful. He's joining me today to talk about his new novel, Plastic Monsters. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Daniel J. Volpe. to the show
1: thanks for having me I'm happy to be here vincent
0: thank you for being here i was floored when i read plastic monsters <laughs> and i have got so many questions about how you wrote such a well crafted story and such complex characters
1: thank you i'm happy to answer the questions and thank you for reading i appreciate it
0: absolutely so i've described plastic monsters to more than one person as quote the Skillful Exposition of Malignant Narcissism, <laughs> and that seems to be running rampant these days, especially in the realm of social media. So where did you get the inspiration to write a story that puts that phenomenon on display?
1: Uh, th- it was kind of a culmination of a, a bunch of things. Um, really, I, I kind of wanted to do a sick plastic surgery story. At one point in time, I had this idea of like body harvesting and body parts and whatnot. And I'm like, God, it'd be pretty cool to uh, to do something kind of messed up like that. And then the more and more I've seen things just throughout society. And for those of you that don't know, I have two daughters who are fairly young, but even at their ages, there's still a lot of body shaming and stuff like that, even at their age. And I graduated high school actually with Pam pretty much in that Oh, three range where mm-hmm. she is. So a lot of the girls that are in that book are actually girls that are from high school, not by name. So don't, don't anybody, so, you
0: know anybody. But, but based very closely on particular people. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And I think a lot
1: of high schools are like that. You always have that click of mean girls and stuff. And, um, I kind of wanted just to to explore that realm of plastic surgery. I have no surgical background or anything like that. Everything was just research and uh, watching a lot of gross videos and uh, botched surgeries, and it just <laughs> kind of just kind of came to me. I kind of put everything
0: together, and Plastic Monsters was birthed upon the world. So I'm curious, where are you finding these videos and? the material you're talking about for your research. Is that something you can find on YouTube? Or are you going in the, the uh, deep, dark depths of uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> the internet? I don't even think I'm smart enough to access the dark web. Uh, <laughs> not, it was a lot of just Google searches and YouTube videos, watching documentaries on botched surgeries, and just some of these doctors that are just... Actually, I just saw an article today about an anesthesiologist that was doing something similar. Really? Not to this extent. He actually pretty much... Violated this woman's mouth during her C section while she was unconscious at some point, and Ugh. yeah. So these people are people are among us. Just because they have PhDs
0: and these doctors doesn't mean they're uh, any better than some of these other deviants that we see in the world. No, that just makes them more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the character of Doctor DeBiro was really interesting because. Unlike Pam, who was driven by physical vanity, his narcissism was about power and status. There are notorious serial killers that were doctors and even some that are not, like you just spoke about. And even though Dr. DeBiro wasn't a serial killer per se, was he based on any real life psychotic doctors in particular? Or was it just kind of the amalgamation of what you were talking about? You kind of pieced them together.
1: Yeah, he was just like a like a piecemeal kind of thing. And I'm like, what would some of these sickos do if they had this opportunity? And I often think about in the Hostel, if you remember the movie Hostel, I forgot the character's name, but the one guy who, he's obviously one of the killers and stuff. And he said he does it for such a rush. And he's like, I've had all these prostitutes all over the world and I've done this and that. He's like, but there's nothing like the rush of this power pretty much and, and taking somebody's life and to know that you have this ultimate control over them. So I kind of took a little bit from him and just some of the sick things that you've seen, some, you know, malpractice suits. And just if you got somebody who was just so disturbed and they had this power. Um, so that's how he kind of came to be.
0: You know, when you uh, brought up Hostel, I thought immediately that you were going to go to, I guess it's probably the last guy that is actually a doctor himself, but can't perform surgery anymore because he's got tremors too bad.
1: Yeah, he was a cool character too, but uh, no, I always thought about that guy when he was, can we curse on here? I, oh yeah, okay. fuck yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure, and he's like, <laughs> oh, I've had it, I've had every piece of pussy in the world, it's like, I don't remember what the girl's tits like from the night before, he's like, but there was something about, about this, such a rush, and I'm like, that's kind of what I thought, like this guy, you know, had the family, had the money, had the prestige, but he had those little tiny secrets, and carving his name in people, and doing all these sick things, and taking pictures, was like the ultimate for him. Yeah.
0: Well, so I love how you, even though he did a lot of sick shit, I love how you cast Dr. DiBiro as sort of an anti-hero. And the first scene that comes to mind that illustrates that is when he's looking at the family photo album and mourning the loss of ever seeing his family again because they've obviously completely disowned him. So you see that he's capable of love, but then he continues on to the photos of his victims. And the whole scene goes from sad to extremely disturbing. So why do you think that humanizing a villain a little bit makes them so much more terrifying than if they were just complete raging sociopaths?
1: I honestly, I truly think that every person has a little bit of a villain inside of them. And hopefully not to the extent of some of these horror villains. Obviously, they're killing people or maiming or doing all this horrible stuff. But I think everybody has just that little bit inside of them. And to show that human side, like John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy had a family and he was horrifically murdering, torturing, I believe it was young boys mostly. So these people, they are people. And some of them are just completely warped, deranged. They have no emotion or anything like that. They can't show any kind of love. But I think humanizing that monster makes them even more terrifying. You know, Like Michael Myers is just... you know, the shape or I think the boogeyman or whatever they call them. And, you know, it's scary because it's a slasher and he's coming to get you, but there's no humanity to him. Yeah. Whereas you have somebody like, we'll say like Hannibal Lecter or something like that, where he has this intelligence about him and everything he does is calculating. And he just doesn't have that piece of his brain to let him know like this isn't wrong or he does. and He doesn't acknowledge it. I think those human monsters make it all more terrifying.
0: Have you ever read anything of Carl Jung, the psychologist? nah and they right, his stuff his whole concept of the shadow self, like to become a complete individual is to integrate with your shadow, not repress it because you know fucked up shit will come bubbling to the surface, and definitely don't let it overcome you and just become a pure sociopath, so uh. I think possibly your character may have been trying to repress some shit until it took him over.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm actually reading a book by Brian Smith right now. I think it's the Reborn and it opens up with a character like that where he's wanting to kill and kill and kill and he finally just has to succumb to it. Like he can't fight it off anymore. So I mean it's definitely there's people like that. And you know, you watch interviews with serial killers and they talk about that same thing, how for years they tried to fight it and fight it and killing animals or whatever and finally it just they couldn't
0: fight it anymore. Right. Well, so I really like how you gave us the full picture of Pam's development. If I didn't know anything about her upbringing, I would probably hate her character. But because I know her backstory, even though she's ultimately responsible for her own bad behavior, I understand it. And it makes me feel bad for what ultimately happens to her. Can you tell us a little bit about your process for the development of these complex backstories for your characters?
1: Actually, for Pam, I will give full credit. Ask my wife to speak then. I give full credit to my wife for that because she read the original version, um, which didn't have any of Pam's backstory in it. And she was like, she just seems like a bitch. Like she's just this evil character for no reason. You have to have a reason why she's like this. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. She's like, if you're just come into her being crazy like this, there's no sympathy for her. So she's like, you got to do some kind of backstory. So I was like, okay. So I went back and I wrote that opening chapter with her in the locker room, which is obviously very remiss of Carrie. And then the interlude i guess you'll say in the middle on the the softball field so i give full credit to my
0: wife for that because she was the one i came up with that idea does that happen a lot does she give you some uh some pointers especially in maybe female characters maybe some insight into the mindset of female characters
1: uh this was actually the first time that she really had any kind of input before the book was finished you know she read this one i got a print copy And I was like, I want you just to read it because obviously I'm not a woman and I wanted her to read it to make sure I got the perspective and the things I was talking about were accurate. Mm -hmm. But no, she's read everything. And for the most part, this is the first time she's actually kind of told me, okay, you need to change this, this and this.
0: Okay. Well, so I really love the technical medical detail that you bring to the book. And uh, a prime example is when the surgery is being done, the doctor is using propofol, which is the actual drug that's used in anesthesia. And uh, I was briefly disappointed when I found out that the doctor didn't have a ventilator because you can't put someone under without being on a ventilator. But then I find that the missing ventilator was intentional so you could create the terrifying scenario of Pam being told that because he didn't have a ventilator, he couldn't put her all the way under. So that and your description of the specific parts of the physical anatomy made me wonder if you had a medical background, which you said you do not.
1: No, that's just all Google researching and trying to. I like things to have some kind of reality. And in some of my books, I do play in the supernatural realm, like in Talia. Talia is like, it's the bloody, smutty, good time. And you know you got to suspend disbelief for mm-hmm. that. But for this book, I want to really stay in the realm of reality and want you to think that this could happen. Granted, the things that happen are probably would never happen in the world. I don't know if propofol acts exactly the way it does, but I do know that if you anesthetize somebody for that amount of time with that drug, they have to be ventilated or mm-hmm. they're, they're going to stop breathing. But then I'm trying to think of scenarios. I'm like, how do I make this possible without him having a ventilator here? And I'm like, well, he's just not going to use enough of mm-hmm. it. Just put him under just enough to hopefully get it done in time. And again, like you said, it made it all that more terrifying because now you have a time restraint,
0: you have a health restraint, and you just have no idea what's going to happen. And on top of that, she's more than likely laying there helpless, can't react, but it's feeling the pain yeah, <laughs> of the actual incisions and Everything which I I won't spoil what's going on. But uh, that was really solid. I was listening to you on the generic podcast. And you said that when it came to outlining, you didn't do one that was like incredibly detailed. It was more of like a flexible outline. Is that still the case?
1: Yeah, for the most part, I kind of like to have some kind of outline because I want to know where I'm going. And it kind of gives me a sense of completion without even writing the book because in my mind, I'm like, all right, I have the outline done and it's a solid outline, but it still has some flexibility. And it makes it easier for me to work through any kind of writer's block or if I'm having like an off day and I'm like, all right, I know I have to get some words out today. I just go to the outline or if I have to take a long break because occasionally projects do pop up, I am a glutton for punishment. So I will have a million deadlines and take on a million more and have to stop one book in the middle to work on another book. So having that outline is great. If I have to come back to something a month or two later, I know exactly where I was. But they're not, like I said, there's not anything too definitive. I leave room for some ideas. Like I finished up writing Talia 2 about a month or two ago, and I had a good outline for that, but some things changed partway through it. I had to move a couple chapters from here to there, and uh it all seemed to work out. Hopefully, we'll see what the readers think.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, Dr. DeBiro and Pam engage in what I would call the crime of the century. So without giving away the conspiracy, do you know the ending before you start the outline? Or does it kind of evolve? It, it evolves. Like within it. Okay. Yeah,
1: for Plastic Monsters, there was a completely different ending until I started actually getting towards the ending. And I'm like, no, nah, I can't end it like this. Like, I have to end it this way. And then I end up thinking of a couple scenarios in my head. And I'm like, nope, I'm gonna end it like the way I decided to. Couple of my books are like that. Some of them are where, like, I think a gift of death. I had that ending pretty much mapped out. That book came to me, and it was like a like a bolt of lightning. Like that book, like shot into my brain. I jotted all the notes down, and I literally wrote the entire book in like the Christmas break, like two weeks. I no banged shit. the whole thing out. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the last day of writing, I marathoned down in my basement where I'm sitting right now, and I did like the last like seven or eight thousand words in one day. So, yeah, sometimes the ending, like for the ending for Talia 2, that came to me. That all was pretty accurate. Some of the things in the middle changed, but the ending was spot on what I thought it was going to be.
0: Well, you know, without getting too deep into it, can you walk me through the long and the short of the process of how one of your books goes from inception to publication, like as far as revision, editing, beta reading, all that kind of stuff?
1: Um. Yeah, pretty much. I always carry a little notepad with me. Generally, most of my notes are taken on my phone. I will literally just use the note app or a voice recorder app on there and I'll take some notes down. When I have enough and I think that, hey, this is my next project, I'll then go into like an outlining phase where I'll sit down with like a legal pad and I'll just write chapter one. And I'll just kind of just stream of consciousness, write out my thoughts of what I want to happen as the story progresses. And then I kind of let that sit for a while. And then I try to adhere to a fairly strict schedule of writing. Monday through Friday, I try to get up early, usually at five, take care of the dogs. And then I sit down, I write until I have to go to work. So it's generally about 45 minutes a day of writing. And I can get around between 800 and 1300 words a day. Most of my books are fairly short. They fall in that novella range. So I've been finding like 40,000 words is like my sweet spot. Once I finish writing a book, I won't touch it for months. I will write the first draft and I just put it away and I start something else. And then when I have to get it ready, so like I have one coming up for publication through d Publishing in December, so that one I have to start getting prepped, I'll go back through and I use the read aloud function in Microsoft Word, where robotic voice experience reads your story to you. That really, really helps with editing for me because then I can hear all the little mistakes where I might need a comma because I'm not the best with grammar I and mean, I'm not an English teacher or anything like that. So I have editors. I'll go through all that as best as I physically can. And if I wanted to have like a beta read, like if something's not working, I will send it out to some beta readers. But that's usually very few and far between. If I'm self-publishing it, then I'll contact an editor. Usually I've been using uh, Pat Harrison from Death's Head. He's been my primary editor. I actually co-wrote Visceral 2 with him. I'll send it out to him. He's very quick, very thorough. He'll get it back to me. I'll give it another run of edits myself just to make sure there's nothing that's missed. Then... Again, if I'm self-publishing it, I will then order a proof copy because I have to read it physically in a paperback. I get my paperback copy in. I'll go through it again. I'll reread it make any more edits that have to be done. Re-input the final file and say a prayer and send it to the interwebs.
0: <laughs> Give it the blessing. Yep. <laughs> send yep. and, it off.
1: and in there as well, obviously, I will contact cover artists, get all that stuff rolling. I'm not an artist, but sometimes I have some ideas of what I kind of want. Like for the cover of Plastic Monsters, I had no idea what I wanted. I reached out to Don Noble, who was like a fucking wizard. And I was like, Don, it's plastic surgery horror. It's about this, this, and this. This is what happens in it. Do your thing. And he gave me a beautiful cover. That was like the first cover thing I've ever gotten from anybody. That the first time, that was it. Like The font, the picture, the layout, everything on it was perfect. If it's going through a publisher, again, it's a little different. They send it to their editors. Their editors will then reach out to me and I'll give it a final proof edit.
0: And then we'll, we'll talk about what we want to do for the cover as well. And did I understand correctly, obviously, you do use professional editors, but are there times where you don't no, I, books where you edit yourself? No, I'm terrible at it. Okay, I you, so always, you always have somebody yeah, far removed. Okay, uh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And I hire editors that are honest, like there's nothing worse than getting an editor that that's not a good track record. And an editor is just going to fluff you and be like, oh, yeah, this is great, because I know it's not. I know it needs work. That's why I'm hiring you. Early on in my writing career, I used one editor, and uh, he was a good editor, but he took a while to work. So I've since switched, and now I'll use at least one editor. Sometimes, if it's a longer piece, I might hire two editors. Have one edit it, and then make like, hey, this has already been primarily edited by this guy. Can you just run through it again and give me your rate? It's worth the money. For any aspiring writers out there, if you're going to self-publish, don't skimp on editing and your cover art. Those are two very, very important things. The layout, interior layout is great. It looks cool if you have fancy images and stuff like that. But if you have typos in every other page or you have a clip art cover that looks like my third grader did Mm it, there's a good chance people may not pick it up. And that's just the truth of it. Because I was that guy that had a shitty cover to begin with for my first book, Billy Silver. Mm -hmm. And I had a few honest people like, hey, dude, that cover sucks. Like, you (laughs) You need something better. I'm like, you're right. So I hired a professional cover artist and I got a much better cover.
0: Yeah, I guess people do literally judge a book by its cover. It's the first thing they see, so you got to catch their attention. Yep. Yeah. Well, so I believe if I've got it correct, the next novel or novella in line before Plastic Monsters was left to you. Is that right? Uh, only Psychos. Only Psychos. Okay.
1: Technically it was Visceral 2. Visceral 2 is a short story collection I did with Pat Harrison, mm-hmm. but my other solo project before that was Only Psychos.
0: Okay. Yeah, can you uh, tell us a little bit about Only Psychos?
1: So Only Psychos is, uh, that was a really fun book to write. Pretty much the premise is a mother and her two children are, they live in upstate New York. There's like a storm of the century rolling in and another one right behind it, a snowstorm. Her husband's at work and they lose power. House is very cold. And during the break in the storm, she talks to him. And he's like, just go to the local chain motel and wait out the storm. I'll be home in the morning and we'll get through this. She goes there. The chain hotel is booked solid. So she has to go to the local dumpy, shady, weird hotel. And as she's going there, other unsavory characters are also being forced off the highways into this hotel. And this hotel is run by some very, very bad people that have a very dark secret hidden in their basement. And hilarity ensues. It just gets (laughs) crazy in there. And all the lights go out and the emergency red lights come on and everything kind of goes crazy. But what I tell people is this is actually based on loosely based on a true story. Because when we were kids, this almost exact thing happened where I live in upstate New York. We lost power. It was freezing cold. My dad was at work working overnights. My mom didn't know what to do. Four kids. I'm the oldest and I was probably 10, Mm -hmm. maybe 11 at the time. And my youngest sibling was probably three. So my dad was like, just go to the Best Western and spend the night. And us as kids, thought it was the greatest thing. It was fun. You know, you get to sleep in a hotel and it was cool. And we got to the Best Western. And then as an adult, I thought to myself, what would have happened if we didn't get there? What if we couldn't get there? It was full. We had to go to the little shady place. That was a mom and pop place down the road that was old and, you know, presumably haunted and all this stuff. So that's how that kind Bates of- Bates Motel. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's how that, that story kind of grew legs. And uh, I told my siblings about it and they were laughing about it because they remember, well, my sister, at least, does because she's around my age. Uh-huh. but that's how that one was born.
0: So now you're saying in that story, obviously the people that run the motel are crazy, but there's also crazy people forced off the road with them.
1: Yeah, there's. Um, you have a guy who's a serial killer who's got a dead body that he <laughs> is driving with. In the uh, he has a he has a guy that he murdered, and he has him dressed like a woman sitting in the passenger seat. <laughs> um, you have two budding porn stars that are like 19 year old teenagers that are just going around the country making videos almost like OnlyFans. they're going around making videos they're putting them up online making money you have a lawyer that is running from a motorcycle gang because he ripped them off for money and meth Mm. and he's smoking a hell out of some meth (laughs) and then uh Uh, and then you have this this sweet mother and her two children that just happened to get forced into this hotel damn the luck
0: (laughs) yeah i know well so i've heard a lot about talia tell me about that
1: so Talia is a character in my first novella, Billy Silver. And Talia, if you read Billy Silver, she's a very mysterious kind of character. She ends up meeting Billy Silver and giving him some very weird tattoo, which kind of starts driving him insane. After I wrote that book, people were asking me like, oh, what about this Talia woman? What's up with her? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, What's her backstory? I'm like, I don't know. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a book about her. So um, I wanted to explore her background. So I decided to make my own little novella and i always wanted to kind of do like um like a snuff film novella and i love vengeance stories like i love revenge i think it's great most people love revenge stories so i was like i'm gonna do a snuff revenge story so i decided to write talia pretty much she is a midwest girl that gets wrapped up with some bad people in new york city ends up getting herself way over her head and really bad things happen to her and people around her and um let to say uh she gets hers in the end. And uh surprisingly that book has done very, very well with female readers. There there is sexual assault, there's sexual violence in it. And I've had women reach out and tell me that. What happens in that book really helped them get through their own personal dilemmas, which is great to hear because anytime I can entertain and help people is the goal. You know, that's phenomenal. And Tali's kind of spawned a life of her own. I have one of my readers recently has got a tattoo of the book cover on his arm. I posted that. I've had uh fan fiction Pictures taken, I had this one woman, Charlie, she's awesome. She uh, modeled as Talia and took a picture of herself with the razor. People are telling me they're going to be her for Halloween, and now I have uh, book two is done. I just have to get it edited, and I think I'm going to try to release it next year around March. So I
0: have copies for Scares That Care in uh, in the end of March, beginning of April. So can you give us a little insight on Talia too, or are you keeping that for?
1: No, I, I, have, no, I have no problem giving a little background to it. Talia to me is like my Jason Voorhees character. When you read Talia, you're not getting any kind of philosophical depth in it. It's sex and violence and vengeance for the most part. Uh, It's a beach read. I always call it like a beach read. Like you can kind of lay down on the beach, read it, put it down, have a couple beers, pick it back up and be like, where was I? Uh, Oh, this looks like a good spot. It's just meant to be fun. It's not meant to be serious. Even the cover, like when I reveal a cover for the second book, people are going to be like, all right, like it's just kind of, it's, it's fun. Um, So Talia two takes place a few years after the first one ends. And Talia, as we know, goes through a certain transformation in the first book and she wakes up and she's given an assignment and she's pretty much sent to like this town where there is a school that is run by a pretty much an asshole of a principal who does really, really bad things. He has a lot of the teachers and the townspeople under his thumb, has a certain group of students that he uses as enforcers to do his bidding. And they've drawn the attention of some people they shouldn't have drawn the attention of. And one of them happens to be Talia. And she is pretty much sent there to right the wrongs. And uh, that's pretty much it. It's going to be called Talia 2, Halls of Blood. It's school settings, stuff. So there's a the correlation for that. I have a third one planned that I will write probably in the next year or so. And that'll be it. I'll do one trilogy with her and go on from there.
0: And you mentioned Scares the Care.
1: So Scares That Care is a convention that takes place in Williamsburg, Virginia, and it's a charity convention. And last year they did, or this year, they should say they did the first ever Scares the Care author con, where it was just authors that were invited or that were allowed to purchase tables. So I had a great time in April and uh, they're doing another one next April. So I already bought my tickets for my table and everything like that. And I like to have something new to bring when uh, I go to these conventions. And since Talia is one of my biggest draws, I would like to have that book ready for that convention so that people can pick it up and get a signed copy there.
0: Well, I saw the video teaser for the big announcement you were doing with, uh, Aaron. I hear two different things. Is it Beauregard or Beauregard? He, he doesn't. even. Okay. Know. He
1: changed, he changes it like every other day. <laughs> what doing. What we, he's, te- he's actually texting me right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually in a group chat with him and Chris Triana, and, um, uh, But, yeah, he changes every fucking day. So, I don't know. I just call Aaron Beauregard or whatever the fuck he says. Okay.
0: Well, so I saw you and Aaron (laughs) (laughs) doing a video announcement where you were going to go onto Facebook Live and make a big announcement. I unfortunately do not have Facebook, but from what I gather, it involved a short story compilation called Obituaries. Is that correct?
1: Uh, I should have one, right? So, myself, Aaron, and Chris Triana... We decided to do this little kind of almost like we all are all triple signed here. Nice. These are all sold out, by the way. So uh, you can't have this one. This is my <laughs> copy. Um, so we decided we want to do something to try to give something cool to the readers, something collectible. Because we're all kind of not all of us, but some of us are collectors. Like I have a couple signed books, mostly Ed Lee books. We want to do something cool for the readers. We want to do something private to kind of stay away from Amazon, and we want to do something just exclusive that only the hardcore. Readers would be able to pick up. And sometimes, as you may or may not know, if you ever heard a little thing called cancel culture, sometimes that happens. And Amazon, especially, if you put something too explicit on Amazon, somebody complains, you can get yourself in some trouble with your account. So we decided we were going to do this on our own. We were going to fund it ourselves. We were going to print a limited number of copies and we were just going to go as hardcore as we could. And we were going to go all out. And that was it. We printed out 350 copies that are all triple signed and numbered. And myself and Aaron went to Chris's house and we did a live video on Facebook and pretty much it was first come first serve. Whoever was able to scrap them up, they end up getting the books and the second one will be out for Halloween. It was such an overwhelming success that we decided we're gonna launch a second one. Actually, that's what they're messaging me about is we're getting our stories situated for formatting coming up soon, so. Awesome. Yep, and we have some very, very big news coming in twenty twenty three for the obituaries. And I think people are gonna shit their pants when we reveal what's really? coming
0: next. Yeah. Pants shitting. Awesome. Shat upon, yeah. Like Shat
2: upon. <laughs> loads of shit everywhere. Loads to be made. Of shit.
0: So much shit. Ugh, everywhere. <laughs> well, you know, it surprises me what you said about Amazon because I mean I'd literally just bought a copy of The Big Head. Mm. Are you guys going harder than the big head? I don't think
1: you ever go harder than the big head. It's yeah. <laughs> not so much the it's not so much the content, it's the people that will report you. So if you get somebody you write something that's a little bit out of their comfort zone for whatever reason they're reading Extreme Horror, they'll report you to Amazon. And we don't want to share any of our profits. We decide we were gonna fund it ourselves. So we're like, you know what, let's cut them out. We're not gonna do an e copy of it. It was just these couple just to give it a shot and um, our readers are fucking rock stars they came through in a big way they made us really feel appreciated and loved and they grabbed them all up before we could blink i mean i think within a week and a half all 350 copies between the three of us were sold out so it was it was great
0: well what is your uh writing medium is it as simple as a laptop or do you have some special quirky thing you do
1: nope laptop just <laughs> laptop it. laptop microsoft word <laughs> Uh, I was using Google Docs for a while, but then it started getting glitchy and then I started losing things. And so I will use Google Docs as like a backup just to save it in like a cloud system. Cause I don't use the Microsoft Word cloud. I don't really like it. Not a big fan of it. I just use two flash drives, Microsoft Word. I triple save it there and then I will copy and paste it into Google Docs as just a backup to save it. My problem is I don't have like a good note taking system because I take notes in like so many different places. So most of it's on my phone. But like I said, I carry a little notepad and a pen. Because I am a father, I do wear cargo pants and cargo shorts. So I always have all that extra, (laughs) that extra space. So, uh. At conventions, I always wear a fanny pack.
0: Okay, awesome.
1: It's flamingo. Exactly. You
0: can't claim that unless you wear a fanny pack, so I was oh. just making sure. Oh, I do.
1: <laughs> you gotta go, you don't have Facebook, but if you can check out like even Instagram and stuff. There's pictures of me at the conventions wearing a flamingo fanny pack and nice. just, just drinking beers. That's <laughs> 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 a great time. Yeah, uh, But yeah, I take notes on everything. I find it a lot easier to outline uh, with pen and paper just because I kind of get that stream of consciousness and start
0: writing it out. Whereas I used to outline typing, I kind of like outlining, which is a legal pad. Gotcha. Well, I was going to ask you what your writing atmosphere is, but I think I'm looking at you and your writing atmosphere, correct?
1: Yeah, I kind of bounce around a little bit. So in the mornings when I get up, I'm usually the only one up. I take care of the dogs and stuff. So like I said, I usually write upstairs in the living room. If it's a busy day or the kids are just being a pain in the ass, I'll come down to my lair down in the basement here. And um I'll sit down here and I'll I'll write. But for the most part, I literally just sit at my computer desk upstairs because it's quiet and nobody's up. But I can write anywhere. It doesn't really matter as long as I have my computer and grab some headphones and if it's really loud, I have noise canceling ones almost like yours, like big earmuffs, and I just put on a crank white noise. I'll do like uh fire or like thunderstorms and I just listen to that. I can't do anything I can't do any of that stuff that involves my brain. It has to be just white noise.
0: How extensive is that collection behind you? How far does those bookshelves go? Um, they go pretty
1: far. So I have that. That's a lot of. That's like some action, some war books, history, military, some fantasy, way more fantasy.
0: Warhammer listeners at home, I'm looking at a white bookshelf. About what is that? Nine shelves high. Uh,
1: yeah, it's uh, it's up there. Yeah, and it's, nine it's one nine shelves of those double, high. They're double stacked, double layers and then this Packed is my to the
0: gills and that's my
1: horror <laughs> section uh-huh so on the top you got a lot of all my ed lee books Brian keen and mostly stephen king uh, i the see bottom. the big
0: head right there in the corner
1: yep the big head that's all my indie stuff some of my buddies down there then the bottom here you can see them all the way in the bottom those are my books that i have like for stock and all my boxes and shit that i've stacked up for gotcha storage impressive sir Thank you, thank you. I've read a, I've read a lot of them. I'm an avid, avid reader. Do you have a pretty big TBR list? Oh yeah, It grows every day. Uh, <laughs> I get a lot of requests for blurbs and for beta reading and stuff, and I try to take on as many as I can, but I don't want to disappoint anybody. So I, I unfortunately, have to turn some people down here and there. But I try to do what I can, just because I feel like it's important to give back to everybody. Brian Keane blurbed Plastic Monsters for me, and I was like in awe. Edward Lee blurbed Billy Silver. And Ronald Kelly, who's a fucking legend, or only psychos. And those guys are all just huge names and so respectable in the world of horror that if somebody asks me to do that for them, I feel like it's almost like my duty, like it's humbling that they would even ask me to do Mm -hmm. that. So I try not to turn down anybody. Sometimes time constraints, you know, they play a role in it too, but I do what I can.
0: Yeah, I saw that that post you did of Edward Lee's book, his new collection of short stories.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like three novellas kind of and then one short story. Oh, okay. Yeah, Mr. Tilling's basement. Excellent. Yeah, he's just a fun I'll email him routinely and we'll go back and forth and it's still like very surreal to me that I'm talking to Edward Lee, even though it's like an email,
0: like it's just cool that we're like like I know him by, by name. Like it's just really weird. I bet. I had Nevada McPherson on the show, and she said that she painted and that a lot of famous authors like Flannery O'Connor painted because the attention to the detail of people and landscapes helped them paint vivid pictures of their characters and settings. So I was curious to know if you do anything that's unrelated to reading and writing that you feel helps you become a better writer.
1: Um, Nothing artistic, I would say. I'm an avid hunter. So I think sometimes being in the woods and just having that like solitude and just sitting out there and listening to everything and really hyper-focusing on the sounds and the sights and smells, that kind of really helps me and clears my mind a little bit. And I find that sometimes when I'm doing monotonous things, like if I'm driving, I got a lot of my ideas when I'm driving for some reason, like I'll just be driving and that bang, it was cooking in my head. I don't know if it's because I'm so focused on the road that it leaves the creative part open. And the same thing with hunting, where I'm sitting in that stand and either I'm freezing to death and I'm just kind of focused on that and I'm trying to focus on staying warm and looking for a deer or something like that. And then all of a sudden, ideas will pop in my head and I'm like, fuck, I gotta try to dig my phone out. I'm trying (laughs) to put ideas in and, you know. um, So I'd say that's probably it.
0: Yeah, the two things you mentioned, hunting and driving, those are kind of similar in that, you know, unless you've got somebody else in the vehicle with you, you're kind of, you're by yourself, you're away from the massive overstimulation that we're all subjected to every day so in a sense it's kind of like you're listening to white noise at home
1: yeah and sometimes when i drive i'll generally listen to podcasts every now and then i'll listen to like a book on tape like i was going to scares the carrots in virginia so it's about almost eight hour drive seven hour drive i'll do books on tape but sometimes i just put music on i'll put it very low and i just kind of listen to the road and i just focus on driving and i just go and um like I said, every now and then I'll have an idea. That's where the voice recorder really, really helps because then as I'm driving, I can just hit the record button on the voice recorder on my phone and just talk stream of consciousness. And then when I get home or I get to my notepad, I can really sit down and flush the notes out. But, um, you know,
0: that white noise and the solitude, I think really helps stimulate my brain. Would you consider yourself an introvert? I mean, obviously you do a lot of social things, but being an introvert doesn't necessarily mean you're not social. You just kind of are turned inward.
1: Uh no, I, I never really consider myself an introvert. Like I don't have a problem public speaking, I don't have a problem talking to strangers. Like I never got kidnapped as a kid, so that was good. But I was <laughs> always the kid that would be like, Hi, like hell, and you know, I have no problem uh putting myself out there. You know, if there's a group setting, I don't mind talking to people. So um no, I feel I feel like I'm more extroverted than anything, which definitely helps when it comes to conventions because some people are shy as they're walking around and I want to make them feel comfortable like I'm just a bum from New York that writes stupid books. Like there's nothing to be scared of. You can come talk to me. You can come tell me that you like my book or you hated my book or come take a fucking lollipop or a beer from the table and we'll hang out. Like uh, I'm just there to have
0: fun. Well, obviously probably at the top of the list would be Edward Lee. And you've mentioned a few so far, but who would you say are your writing influences? I mean, it's very cliche, but I have to say I like Stephen King, uh, Stephen
1: King and Arl Stein. He's actually coming to an area not far from me. R.L. sign is in the next month. Uh, I might actually have to go meet him because I grew up on goosebumps. You know, I was born in 85 and I was, you know, in nineties kid. So when all those goosebumps books came out, like I had stacks of them. i had the, all of them. And I loved it. I loved those scary stories. And my reading level went through the roof as a kid. And by the time I was in sixth grade, I was probably reading Stephen King books and uh, just getting lost in some of those and being genuinely scared by some of them. Like us oh, really cool. I wish I could do this. And I start writing scary stories when I was a little kid and I still have some of them. And probably my most popular one that I read live on my Facebook page one time, is was called The Chicken Chickenator. And it was about seven foot tall chicken that shot a machine gun with popcorn chicken. And he was killing kids and they were killing him a barbecue sauce. But, um, uh, but I, I've always told stories and now people pay me for it, which is really cool.
0: As far as Stephen King, which one really hit you hard? Like for me, when I was a teenager, The Stand was the one that really...
1: Um, for me, there's two books and I did two different points in my life. So I will definitely say Night Shift and really mainly down to The Boogeyman. The Boogeyman is one of the scariest stories I've ever read in my life. The stories everything shit out of me as a kid. Uh, it's just so well-crafted. I think Stephen King's short stories are better than his novels in some cases because he just knows how to write a short story. And as an adult, for me, the scariest thing he wrote was Pet Cemetery, because I have two kids. And I read Pet Cemetery when I was a kid, you know, teenager. And I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, I've seen the movie, it was cool. But as an adult with children, I read that and I'm like, this scares the shit out of me because I don't know what I would do if I was in Lewis's situation. And you're like, I don't know. And that just again, that human villain thing comes back into action and it plays into your brain. And you're like, what would I do if this happened to me? And I had disability and I had a fucking Judd as my neighbor telling me I could do this. And so, yeah, night shift and pet cemetery.
0: Yeah. It's funny how you read something when you're young, but it's not until you're older and you have life experience that gives you the perspective that the story is being told from that it like goes from, Oh, it was just something that was kind of creepy when I was a kid to something absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Well, your marketing and merchandising game is fucking strong, <laughs> especially <laughs> okay. especially the detailed newsletter you maintain on Substack. So at what point in your writing career did you start marketing and merchandising?
1: Um, early on, I started with the merchandise stuff only because I love selling signed copies. So that's what I was doing before. I jumped on here. I was getting some books prepared to, to ship out to some readers. I love selling signed copies because I love the one-on-one interaction. I love interacting with the readers. And I was like, you know what? They're spending a little bit of extra money on the shipping. So I want to give them something a little nicer just to have like a a thank you. Obviously, they're getting a signed book, but I want to throw some stuff in. So I started very quickly figuring out that if I go on Vistaprint, I can get these like business card size magnets in my book covers. And I have them for all of my books. Uh, It's Upside Down. It's Plastic Monsters. And... I just started exploring different websites. So I kind of started merchandising almost right away with Billy Silver. And it has since exploded to where now I have different bookmarks with my name, my little Fox logo on it, all of my like stickers with all that logo on it, another logo that I had drawn up. But really, at the beginning of this year is when I'd say... I'm trying to think when I released my website. I think that was in possibly May. Um, I decided to take it to another level and open up a big cartel store, which is just pretty much a third party, not even a distributor, it's just like a third party that helps you build a website pretty much to sell merchandise on. And they do the tax and they do all the money and everything like that. And it's a much safer way than it's going person to person on PayPal because you know, people have obviously had bad experiences. And I'm always looking to expand, you know, different merchandise stuff. I don't want to quite go like, the kiss route where I have like Daniel J. Volpe like fucking underwear or anything. (laughs) You need the cardboard cutout. (laughs) I should be a short, I'd be a short one. I'm not very tall, but uh, I do love all that, that cool stuff. So like, I like stickers. Like you see my, I got my little water bottle here and I got my, you know, spider punk sticker on it. I got one of my stickers. I got my authors supporting a troop sticker on it. So I kind of like that stuff. So I'm like, I think other people would like it. So I started getting into that and marketing wise, the marketing is, Amazing because I have amazing, amazing fucking readers. They are my marketing. They are sharing my stuff daily. They're leaving reviews for me. They're reaching out to me. I've had some really great friends that I've made just from reading my books. Donna Latham is my number one fan. She's my Annie Wilkes, as we always, <laughs> we always joke. And, uh, she is a fucking amazing person. I dedicated plastic monsters to her just because. We have that type of a relationship. Uh, she bought me a pair of socks, has her face on it, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I wore them to scares. Um, so my marketing is my readers. Every now and then I will take out an ad or two. I'll go on some of these websites. You know, it's almost impossible to get on bookbub, but, um, I try Facebook. I'll do some Facebook ads here or there, just like a bomb, like just a throw like when I release plastic monsters, just to throw one big hundred dollar Facebook ad out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but really TikTok, the influencers on there. Some of those reviewers, they're great marketing tools, and um, I've made very good friends with some of them. One of them actually lives not far from me, so I've hung out with her before. She's come to my book signings and stuff. So um, yeah, that's pretty much it for marketing. It's just people kind of do it for me right now, which is great. And what's the um, the origin
0: of the Fox logo?
1: So my last name Volpe means Fox in Italian. Oh, okay. It's like a direct translation. Gotcha. So I've always had, I have a bunch of Fox tattoos on my arms, stuff for my kids. So I kind of thought it was a cool idea. I'm like, oh, it's cool just to have that translated. And actually, Aaron Beauregard's wife is the one who designed this logo here. Nice. You guys can see it. it's like a rabid-looking fox in blood and yellow eyes. Uh-huh. She designed that for me. Actually, we were at our first convention, New Jersey Horror Con, last year. I was talking to her. She's a fucking sweetheart. I don't know why she's with Aaron. I, I joke, but <laughs> she's a really, really awesome a little person. little
0: break in there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, no, she's amazing. So, yeah, that's where the, the Fox, all that
0: stuff came from. Well, how much time do you spend marketing versus the writing process?
1: My marketing, like I said, is mainly social media. So I try to dedicate as much time as I can to it sucks sometimes because I sometimes I feel like I live on my phone, mm-hmm. but I really do appreciate every single share that I get, every single like that I get. And I try to make sure that I'm letting people know that Like I said, that's my main source of marketing. It's just the word of mouth and making sure that my readers know that they're appreciated So I will spend sometimes a couple hours a day. Generally speaking, I get up in the morning and do my writing. And then if I have a little bit of a break before work, like if I'm eating breakfast or something like that, I'll be on my phone and I'll be going through and just trying to do everything, you know, answer everybody's questions or like them. I generally set myself roughly about $100 a month to spend in marketing. It's kind of my goal, like if I'm going to buy ads or if I'm going to send books out to reviewers or these influencers on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. So I try to set myself a little bit of a budget just so that I have that money
0: set aside or those books set aside. And um, yeah, that's pretty much how it goes for marketing. And you mentioned one gentleman, I believe, that designed the artwork for Plastic Monsters.
1: So the artist that did Plastic Monsters, his name is Don Noble, and he's over at
0: Rooster Republic Art. Um, He
1: did Plastic Monsters, Only Psychos, Left to You, and A Gift of Death. He did those four books. For me, I've used a couple different cover artists for Billy Silver, the new Billy Silver cover. And Talia One was a guy named Michael Squid, who's another awesome artist, and he's also an author. And for Talia Two, I'm not going to reveal who that cover artist is. Neither of those two gentlemen. For Awakening Blood and So Sorry, we used a guy named Anton Rozovsky. He does most of Aaron's covers. Have you ever seen any Aaron's covers? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the same artist that does them. And for Visceral 2, the book that I did with Pat uh, Pat actually did that cover. Mm,
0: okay.
1: So I will bounce back and forth. I think some artists have different strengths, different weaknesses, and I like certain styles for certain books. Talia, like I guess I was going for a very particular look, especially for the second book. So I was like, oh, this one artist, he does a really good job with these um, images of women and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm going to go with him for this one.
0: Yeah, the two that really stand out to me is Talia with the – yeah. Blade on the tongue and um only psychos.
1: Yeah. It was um Talia it's fine with the Talia covers. We got that cover done it within like two hours. I messaged Mike and I'm like, Hey, are you interested in doing a cover for me? He's like, Yeah, I'm like, This is what I want. He's like, Okay. He sent me a couple things. I'm like, don't nope, change this, this and this. He's like, Okay. He's super, super quick. Comes back, changes it. He's like, What do you think of this? I'm like, Amazing. Let's work on the font. We got the font squared away and I'm like, Okay, how much do I owe you? And that was it. And uh, <laughs> that cover um i have my little magnet here of the, the cover with her looking at yeah, the, the razor blade it's just mm. um i got that made into like a seven foot banner I <laughs> really me to convention yeah <laughs> i think it's i don't want to say it's an iconic cover but it's a very noticeable cover it's eye-catching definitely yeah and i think that when people see that cover they're like holy shit what is that i need to see that and um it draws people in and hopefully they buy the book and hopefully they like
0: it. Mm-hmm.
1: It's definitely not for yeah. everybody. that's
0: my most hardcore book for sure. Yeah, I think that's the one I'm going to try next. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's very. You are you will read the opening line and you're like, all right, either this is for me or this is not for me. Just by <laughs> that that first line, is about a strap-on dildo, nice. and it's the size of a fire extinguisher. So it's uh, <laughs> it's either. Well, it's either I got the visual
0: already, and I haven't I haven't ran yet. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's
1: it's, it's an that's, and that's the that's the beginning and that's the safe
0: zone. So, <laughs> So uh, can you tell me about your past and current publishers? I was looking at uh, Plastic Monsters. Did you self-publish that one? I did. That... Okay. But before that, you were with D&T? Yep. So I'm still yeah. with
1: D&T. Um, we just kind of go back and forth with some stuff. With, um, If I decide I'm going to self-publish something. So D&T Publishing, run by Dawn and Tim Shea. Two of the nicest people you'll ever meet, Dawn. I primarily deal with Dawn, but I have dealt with Tim before. Dawn is amazing to work with. um, Super fair with the authors. We'll listen to your input on covers, editors, pretty much everything. She wants her authors to be happy. That's like first and foremost. Yes, the money is great. She's great to work with. And I've published many things with her. I think I published three books with her and a fourth one on the way, which is going to be the sequel to Gift of Death. It's called Black Hearts and Red Teeth. And that'll be out in December. I've worked with Death's Head Press when I did Visceral 2 with Pat Harrison. And I'm also working with Death's Head's offshoot, uh, Dead Sky Inc., for a uh, three chapbook series. And then I've done a couple things with some other smaller presses for anthologies, Evil Cookie Publishing, run by K. Trapp-Jones, another awesome author, top-notch publisher. Guy puts out great stuff. He's has releasing a lot of Ed Lee's stuff. I think Header 2 just came out. He did his The Pig in the House and Edley put out the Ouija pig, which is the third book in that trilogy through uh evil cookie. Uh for Potter's Grove, run by River Dixon. He done some cool stuff. He published some of Simon Cardi's earlier books. I really enjoy the self-publishing aspect as well. It's fun. It's challenging, but it's fun to go through it all yourself. It's obviously rewarding because you get to keep all of your royalties, yeah. but it's just nice to know that like you did this from start to finish. You made all the decisions about editing, formatting, cover, marketing prices, promotion, you're in charge. So I do like that. But it is nice to sometimes turn things over to a publisher and be like, here you go, just you you take care of it. And I'll just just pay me when the money comes in.
0: (laughs) Well, when you self publish, are you using some sort of like software where you basically construct the way the book is bound? Or how does that work? Exactly.
1: So I'm pretty basic. I use Kindle Create. So it's obviously through Amazon's Kindle program. And it's very, very easy to use. You pretty much Drag and drop a Word document into it and it formats it for you. And you can change some minor things like text. If you saw on plastic monsters, I had little scalpels as my chapter breaks. Uh You know, I was able to put stuff like that, the cover image in there where it says plastic monsters and has the scalpel. Like I was able to put that stuff in there. I know there's way more complicated things out there for people that are much more computer savvy. Like Aaron is very good at formatting books through Microsoft Word. You know, there's templates you can buy and use. I'm not that savvy. Uh, (laughs) I just, I use Kindle Create. I like the way it looks. It still looks professional. It's easy to use. I never have any issues with it going into the Kindle direct publishing. So because that's my primary publisher is through Amazon, there's no hiccups. There's no issues with it. And it just makes my life so much easier. So this
0: is for ebook only, or this is also for the hard copies?
1: It's for everything. Hard copies, ebook, paperbacks. Yeah, they do it all. And pretty much you just pick your paper size. So if I say, "All right, my hard covers are going to be six by nines, my paperbacks are going to be five by eights. you just plug that right in, and it formats it
0: for you. Well, I counted at least three of your works on audiobook. Which uh, which format of your works seem to sell the best? Be ebook, hard copy, audio?
1: Um, I would say paperbacks. Paperbacks are my biggest seller. I do sell a lot of ebooks. Audiobooks are hit or miss. I think the main reason is because my audiobooks are fairly short, and I think the way Audible works, you get a credit. And I think people don't want to use a credit on a three hour book when you can use a credit on a twenty-seven hour book. Mm. So um the ebooks for me or the audio books for me don't sell as well, but the paperbacks are amazing. Like I move paperbacks through my online store from home, which you see here, and just my sales through Amazon, which I you know, my self-published books, I can obviously see them real time, but my published books through publishers, I have to wait monthly to see the numbers on that.
0: Well, judging from your output and the fact that you have a family and a day job. I don't know where you'd find the time, but have you thought of narrating one of your audiobooks?
1: Um, I have thought about it, but I really don't have the equipment or the setup for it right yet. I have a little, like, this door, if you can see it back here, that's underneath the stairs for the basement. Okay. So I honestly thought about taking that little spot and just getting some soundproofing and just soundproofing that little spot and then just trying to do it myself. I just don't know if I have the time or patience or know how to use, like, recording software. So... Maybe in the future, I might try to do it, but at this point, I'd just rather pay people that are competent and have a better voice and can do it themselves.
0: How would you do it? Would you emote spooky? Would you raise the uh, register of your voice up if a female was speaking? And
1: I, I, It'd probably sound ridiculous. I'd probably <laughs> try to do it because I've been turned off by audiobooks that are like that, where they're so like over the top. Yeah. Like I think it was um, Cabin at the End of the World. And the audio book was that the narr- female narrator was so bad. It was like comical. <laughs> like She's trying to do male voices. And uh, it was just, she tried too hard. It like took me out of the book. Whereas like Stephen Kozanewski has his book, The Ghoul Archipelago, and he has a female narrator. And she does male voices very, very well. And uh, it's an excellent zombie book. If anybody's out there looking for a zombie book, that's very unique. She does a great job at it. So I don't know if I have the talent, because those people are very talented. John Wayne Communal is another very, very talented narrator. Mm -hmm. He narrated Billy Silver. He's excellent. Excellent narrator.
0: So this one is of personal interest to me. You're also a co-host on the Written in Red podcast, along with Aaron Beauregard, Carver Pike, and Roland Bercy Jr. So can you uh, tell us about its creation and how long you guys have been producing it?
1: Yeah. So written and read pretty much about, I'd say a year and a half ago, Aaron and I were talking and we were still very new to writing, but we were very much out there. We were talking to a lot of people, just talking to people online and stuff. And people were asking us questions like, oh, especially when it comes to merchandise or writing and stuff like, oh, how do you guys do this? How do you do that? So we were answering questions all the time. And we kind of thought like, well, well, we should do like a, a little mini podcast just to try to give people a, a reference for information. Like, hey, I have a question about formatting. Where should I go? So we were like, oh, we'll do an episode on formatting. And we decided, like, oh, you know what? We should really bring Roland in. Roland is an amazing writer. He's very, very well versed in audiobooks. He doesn't record them himself, but he's done a lot of them. Like, he's had his books all converted into audio. And we were, I think I was talking to Carver Pike about it. I'm like, yeah, we we're thinking about doing this podcast. He's like, oh, it's cool. He's like, if you ever have guests, he's like, let me know. I'd love to come on because he's been at it for longer than any of us. So we're like, yeah, it'd be cool. So Aaron and I kind of talked and we're like, you know what? Maybe we should bring him on as the fourth co host. So we reached out to him. We're like, "Yeah, let's let's do it." And uh, that's pretty much it from there. We just start recording, and it's just a shit show. <laughs> like we get on there. Like the first couple episodes, I'm like hammered, and uh, the first four the first four episodes we did, we recorded in one night. So if you watch them, I get progressively more and more drunk throughout each episode and tired. It's like the last one we finished recording, it was like one in the morning, uh... and I'm like. I drank like a fucking, I'm drinking Evan Williams straight and uh, I was just trashed. But um, it's just a fun show to do. And when we get people that message us, email us, written and read podcast at gmail.com, they message us questions and uh, they'll reach out and say, you know, just thank you. Like it really helped me. It pushed me through to start my writing up again. Like those are amazing comments. And we're always open for questions. And now we've kind of morphed it into, taking on guests. So now we bring in on these other authors that have had way more time than us, way more experience than us, giving them an outlet to kind of share their trials and tribulations and give us some input. Like I think next upcoming episode we have soon, we have kind of like Jay Wilburn. Like Jay Wilburn's been at this for probably decades. And the guy's an amazing writer, an amazing asset to the community. So it's really helpful to have just like masters of their craft on there. And we try to highlight some of the newer people as well. Like are not just all these... Um, Seasoned veterans like we had Rain Havoc on. She's pretty new. We had like West Souther. He's been around for a while, but again, in the grand scheme of things, he's still fairly new at it. Christiana, he's been doing it for quite a while. We're trying to get some bigger names, which we got some announcements coming up soon. But we had Ronald Kelly. I mean, Ronald Kelly's been writing since the fucking eighties. Mm-hmm. Like that dude started writing before I was born, I think. And, <laughs> and he's the nicest, most humble guy and a super talented writer. So yeah, that's pretty much it. We were talking earlier today about. What ridiculous, stupid fucking costumes we're going to wear for our upcoming Halloween episode. (laughs) Because last year we did it and I had like a. Any spoilers?
0: We got to wait. I don't even
1: have mine yet. So uh, (laughs) last year I had like a giant blonde wig and a bandana and a Fu Manchu mustache and I just kept yelling (laughs) brother the entire time. (laughs) I was just fucking, it was just drinking
0: drinking Miller Lights to my face. (laughs) That's funny. Do you guys publish that with any regularity or just when your schedules all align? No,
1: we do it every other Monday. Um, an episode comes out. Right before the summer started, we fucking battened down the hatches and we knocked out as many episodes as we could. Like we were doing two or three a week just to have them on reserve so we didn't have to worry about getting at it during the summer schedule. So um they're all pre-recorded. But now we're starting to get back. We're starting to get through all those. So we're getting back into recording season. should be coming up soon. We're going to do a few more solo episodes with just the four of us. And I'll we'll probably bring some more guests back on to interview. But yeah, every other Monday, it's on all the major Platforms. The best thing to do is to watch
0: on YouTube because it's just fucking ridiculous. You actually see you guys.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just see us, and a lot of times, a lot of times, we, me and Aaron, will like bust Carver's balls. So he'll start talking. We'll just, we just know we're going to start laughing. We start laughing at him before he even says anything, and he's uh, like, "Fuck you!" Yeah, it's just fun.
0: That's
1: funny. Yeah.
0: Well, I assume you like horror movies, and this is where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. So. What's your favorite sub-genre of horror and do you like any other kind of dark literature like Noir or the occult?
1: Um, this is gonna come as a shock to most people, but I'm not the biggest horror movie watcher. I do like them. I just watched what the hell was it the other day? Go Jam something like that. It was a Korean movie about a uh, found footage about an asylum. It's pretty good. It was on prime. But um, my wife hates horror movies <laughs> with like a passion. She's terrified of them. She's a big baby. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a lot of time to watch them. Me personally, like, I'm not a big TV person to begin with. I, you could take my TV before you could take my books. Mm-hmm. I'm gladly give up my TV before you took my books away. Same, <laughs> But I, I do love a good... I love found footage too. Like I'm a glutton for it, even though some are so hokey and cheesy. Like Hell House LLC, I think is one of the best found footage movies and horror movies in general. That was excellent. Genuinely creepy. But I have to say, my probably my favorite... Type of horror movie has got to be just good old slashers. Like where it's almost like Talia, where I'm gonna see some nudity, I'm gonna see some kills, and I'm gonna see some creative kills. And uh that's gonna be it, and it's gonna be fun. I could turn on in the middle of it, and the storyline is there's a killer and he's fucking killing people. <laughs> and maybe some people are gonna have sex at some point, and I'm gonna see some boobs. And that's that's pretty much
0: <laughs> definitely it. gotta have that part. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, I said, I would grow up. I grew up in the 90s, and that was always like, oh, and I watch Friday the 13th. I uh-huh. want make sure I have the, the unedited version. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs>
1: See, the counselor's running around.
0: Well, so since uh, you said your wife is just absolutely horror movies are a no go, does she read any of your stuff?
1: Yeah, she reads it all.
0: Okay. So um, she's she read it just, all. Just can't have the visual representation of it. She doesn't like to be scared. She don't like a
1: jump scare kind of thing. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so she's just like, I don't like it. She's like, I don't want have nightmares. The books, cause she knows me. It's almost like the peak behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, so she knows me. So she knows it's just like stupid shit that I write. And she's like, it's not scary to me because I know you're my husband. Like you, you made this up. Like it's not scary. Uh-huh. So that's why she doesn't mind. She reads it and she laughs at some of it. And she said, like, it's fucking gross or, you know, there's a lot of sex in this oh, one. And honey. She's like, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of wife family, what is the life of Daniel J Volpe? Like outside of writing? Uh, Pretty boring. <laughs> you know, I, uh, <laughs> Sounds like writing keeps you pretty busy. I don't know yeah. if you have time for much else.
1: <laughs> I treat writing like a second job, and hopefully in the near future I can make it my full time job, um, and my only job. But um, I really try to dedicate most of my time. Obviously, I have two kids, so you know they're in activities and sports and stuff like that. So I try to obviously spend time with them. And you know, when I get home from work, it's kind of like all right, it's family time, and obviously you know stuff like this pops up. But I dedicate most of my time to writing and. If it's not writing, it's reading, and if it's not reading, it's marketing, and if it's not marketing, it's sleeping. So, I mean, I do have other hobbies and stuff. Like I said, I, you know, I do enjoy the outdoors, hunting, fishing, going hiking and stuff like that. You know, working out, try to get an hour in here and there when I can. Going outside, playing with the dogs, the kids. You know, a lot of outdoor activities. You know, take the kids for a bike ride and and stuff like that. But. Like I said generally, I try to treat writing as my second job, and I just get as much of it in as I
0: can. Yeah, when I uh, messaged you, I think you were on vacation. I think you were posting pictures on a boat. Were you fishing or something?
1: Uh, oh no, I was probably um, in the by the ocean. I was in uh, Ocean City, Maryland, so I was probably on the beach. Okay.
0: So, so the uh, writing as a second job—Are you talking about maybe querying stuff, or just having your own self-published? merchandise-driven setup?
1: I kind of like the both. I kind of like being a hybrid thing, but I really do like self-publishing. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine today about, because his wife is starting to, she has a book that she completed, and um, he's like, "Oh, She wants to do this and that and that, and I'm like, all right, so just tell her that. If she goes with a major publisher, it's going to be three to four years before that thing sees the light of day. And he's like, really? I'm like, yes, they have schedules, they have contracts, they have all this stuff coming ahead of you. When you self-publish, you're it that's it. I have two books that are finished right now that I could put out tomorrow if I wanted to. You know, It's on my schedule. So I like doing that. I like having a nice backlist because when I put one book out, it kind of builds up the backlist. So I don't want to wait. I'm a very impatient person. You can ask my parents hmm. and my wife because they know I'm impatient. And that when I get it done, I want to get it out. I want to get it to the masses. I don't know if I could sit there and sign with like a big publisher and have to wait two to three years to have my book out in the world Maybe one or two here or there if I went that route in the future. But for right now, the self publishing and small press is definitely the way to go for me. I'll probably just stick with the self publishing for now. If I get something that I write, I think it has a, a shot at a mainstream audience. I might seek out an agent and maybe see if I can get something with a little bit bigger, you know, bigger company. Like I have a book coming out with Crystal Lake mm-hmm. in the near future and Crystal Lake is a very, very reputable company. Um, not that DNT isn't, but Crystal Lake obviously has been around since, you know, I think they're 10 years old now. They got a pretty wide reach. Maybe in the future, if i write something a little bit longer. Or something like I said, that I feel has got a mainstream appeal. But right now I write such vulgar, gross shit that it's really only appeals to yeah. the indie world. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm, I don't think penguins call on anytime soon. Yeah, I guess
0: Simon and <laughs> Schuster isn't going to want. <laughs> yeah. I mean... That's what's great about it though. You know?
1: Yeah. And that's the great thing about the indie horror community is people, you know, I credit a lot of this to Ed Lee because I never knew people could write like this until I read like the pig. And I'm like, holy shit! Like, this is a book that's out in the world. And this is gross. And then I, going you know, to read like the Big Head, and you're like, somebody published this. And then I'm like, wow, this is a whole new subgenre for me. Where as before, I was thinking like, oh, Stephen King, and not that obviously is Stephen King, but to know that the subgenre of extreme horror exists. Granted, it may not be mainstream unless you're like Clive Barker or, or Bret Easton Ellis. But to know that it exists and there's
0: there's a readership for it, and they are ravenous mm-hmm. and they love this shit. Yeah. And the, the grosser, the better. Well, I have had a blast talking to you, sir. Thank you. I've had a great time. As we uh, bring the show to a close, is there anything you would like to plug or let your readers know about?
1: Um, yeah, well, so my new book, obviously, Plastic Bonds, is out now. It's available in all formats Kindle or ebook, paperback, hardcover. If anybody ever wants to reach out to me, Daniel J. at gmail.com. Uh, if anybody ever wants any kind of signed books, I always keep them in stock as best as I can. Um, that's at Daniel J. VolpeHar.com instead of Gmail. You know, DaveVolpeHorror.com. Uh, you find all my stuff there. some merchandise. I have a little Teespring store that it links to with some shirts and whatnot. Um, I'm going to be doing a book signing. Should be coming up. I'm trying to think. I got a couple of them. I'm going to be in Massachusetts with Aaron on, I think it's October 22nd at the, the Monster Expo out in Massachusetts. Yeah. Written in red. Check that out. Check out all my buddies there. It'll be a great time. And uh, my newsletter, if you guys want to subscribe to my newsletter, actually, what's today? I got to get one ready to go. um, Put it out on the first. So every newsletter comes out on the first of the month, generally at 5 a.m. because that's when I'm up. And um, that newsletter is free. It's on on Substack. So if you follow me on social media, I'm on all the big social media platforms. Check me out there. Get the newsletter. Um, I'll keep you up to date on what I have coming out, what's out already. My appearances. I offer discount codes to any of the merchandise stuff through my newsletter. So if you want that newsletter, that discount code, feel free to sign up for the newsletter and you'll get that 15% off anything you purchase on a Teespring.
0: So um, that's pretty much it. Sounds good. Listeners at home, all links will be in the description and Daniel, thank you again for being on the show.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to like, share subscribe and follow the show on instagram and youtube stay healthy stay sane and as always thank you for listening see you next time
2: I'm the legend I'm a fixer Painting portraits Get the picture like the paper Not the swisher I'm your elder Call me mister Call me mister Y'all should probably do the math. I done been to hell and bad We more not have me in the ass White boys hitting dabs Went from bummy To your girl Probably bump me. Thoughts of things turn a five to dime Something something, it's a classic tale like the alchemist. Mama would be proud of this. Wonder where I'd be without this shit. Probably down and out and shit. Be easy just like the alphabet. Might wanna rewrite your shit. You ain't about this shit No, You don't want these problems like calculus. Uh, how to master the bad ones, I done passed them up. She just fell in love with me and I ain't even had to fuck. Uh, kamikaze, <inaudible> blinded by the shoe, paparazzi, they know i am a to call. Mine everybody. Meu me where I go? They Focus lens when I hop about the bends. Now I got my ends up, every move's a winds up. My life's a movie, so I turn the suspense up. God, hallelujah, we move. Gotta learn patience. I was all in my feelings. Like get me out of this matrix. I was jumping on buildings, labels act like they ain't see. Now when they hit my lineup, I just act like I ain't me. Fix God, no it can't be. All for one, I demand three. Copycats, you are not me. My girl, call me Poppy. Hand sand for you dab up. Whole city getting lapped up. Soon as we knew it was possible, then we knew we had it wrapped up. Comic cause, blinded by the show Lies paparazzi. They know I'm a cold, mine, everybody Know me where I go, why you suicidal?